So let's uh, get started. I want to start with just a brief word of prayer before we go into God's Word and, and discuss this important topic. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, again for your Word, Lord. We thank you that your Word is trustworthy and infallible and true and um, gives us all that we need um, um, for uh, life in this world and for uh, growing in our sanctification and in our faith. And uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, who teaches us your word, who enables us to understand it rightly. And we do pray uh, that this evening, we pray that your Holy Spirit would flow among us and through us and would um, open our uh, eyes, our minds, our ears to the word of God, and that we would not only uh, grow in more knowledge of who you are um, as our God and our King, our Savior, uh, but that we would grow in our faith and trust in you, uh, particularly as we study this uh, very important and very comforting doctrine, Lord. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this evening we are uh, Article 5, talking about providence. And uh, I'm going to start by just reading the paragraph Uh, reading Article 5. It says, God, in His infinite power and wisdom, doth dispose all things to the end for which they were created, that neither good nor evil befalls any by chance or without His providence, and that whatsoever befalls the elect is by His appointment for His glory and their good. So this is the, uh, the doctrine of divine providence and uh it's i think it's it's sad it's uh it's disheartening that uh the doctrine of providence um is not something that christians talk about often anymore um it's it's really it's a doctrine that not many christians are even uh, familiar with when once there was a time when this was a very well-known doctrine not only within the church but just in the Western world. I mean, just among people that were even familiar with the church who had some sort of a, a Christian background, this was a very familiar uh, doctrine. Um, sadly, today, if you say the word providence to anybody inside or outside the church, very likely what comes to mind is the city, Providence, Rhode Island, right? Or a hospital. You know, or maybe a hospital. Um, you know, but 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 they probably think of a hospital if they know one, or or of a school, right, or uh, or or a city. But but even then, most probably would not know a meaning to it. Uh, you know, you might ask that person, "What? Why did they name Providence Rhode Island Providence? What does that mean?" And and I would gather that the vast majority of Christians would say, "Wow." That's a good question. What does it mean? Um, But again, it was very common at one point. Um, For example, George Washington once wrote a letter to a friend and said this, quote, By by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability and expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side. 
And, and you see that a lot. I have read a lot of history books, and whenever I read history books regarding the Revolutionary War or prior to that or even the Civil War, that word comes up quite often when people are talking or when they write letters. Uh, for example, here's another one. Thomas Jefferson once wrote this. Uh, we solemnly publish and declare that these colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Uh, even as late as the end of the Civil War in the year 1869, four years after the Civil War ended, Robert E. Lee wrote a letter to a friend uh, discussing the outcome of the war, and he said this, We failed... But in the good providence of God, apparent, apparent failure often proves a blessing, right? Um, and so you do see that. If you read enough of Revolutionary War histories, letters, uh, all the way up to the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln was fond of using that phrase uh, that uh, providence is for us, providence has smiled upon us, or whatever the case may be. You see that word a lot, yet... It seems to have fallen out of the Christian vocabulary. And, and I think that is tragic. I don't think it should fall out of the Christian vocabulary. So what does the word providence mean? Where, well, first of all, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Latin. And so this is one of those words, again, you're not going to find it in the Bible, like Trinity. right? You're not going to find providence in the Bible. It's, uh, it's a theological term. And it comes from the Latin word uh, providentia, providentia, meaning foresight or prudence, foresight or prudence. It's really a compound word, pro, which means ahead, and videre in Latin, which means to see. Thus, quite literally, the word providence or providentia means to see in advance, right? So that's what the word means, but when we talk about the doctrine of divine providence. Uh, it's not merely that God sees ahead, right? That's not what we mean by that. Um, but rather, uh, the doctrine of divine providence uh, means uh, that God governs all of creation, right? He governs everything that happens is what this means. So providence has to do with God's governance over creation and history. And that is slightly different from when we talk about the sovereignty of God, which we talked about uh, two weeks ago. Right? Sovereignty has to do with the extent of God's reign, right? the extent of God's rule or his authority or his kingship or his dominion. And so when, you talk, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the kingship of God. We're talking about his reign, his, his, uh, his realm, so to speak. Um, so, for example, J.I. Packer has two chapters in his wonderful little book, Concise Theology, A Guide to Historic Christian Beliefs. Anybody have that book on their shelf? You've got it. That is still, I think, one of the best compact little books on historic Christian doctrines that I would highly recommend. And, and I have like three of them myself, uh, one by R.C. Sproul, which is probably, the, I would say, the second best. 
uh, 100 Essentials of the Christian Faith. I've read through it. And those little books are always helpful to really just read through. You can read through them quickly, ton of information. I've got one by Wayne Grudem. It's a little one too, Essentials of the Christian Faith. Um, and I've, I've perused others at bookstores. And even though his book was written in, uh, gosh, I think it was written like in the late 1970s, it is still, I think, really the best book on just a concise book. If, you've got, if you're trying to remember scripture that has to do with redemption, the atonement, election, whatever, you can go to it, open it up. Each chapter is only about three pages crammed with scripture, though that you can just look them all up and be well-informed. It's called Concise Theology, A Guide to Historic Christian Beliefs by J.I. Packer. Uh, He's an Anglican, uh, but uh, I would encourage... (laughs) I think he's still alive. Did he pass away, J.I. Packer? Okay. Okay, so so yeah, you're right. Yeah, not anymore, right? Um, I don't know. Or maybe we'll all be Anglicans when we get there. When I'm talking about J.I. Packer, I don't want to sound arrogant. He is an extremely wise and knowledgeable man. Uh, anything you can read by Packer, uh, except on infant baptism, uh, read, read by Packer. He is worth reading. Um, but anyways, he has, uh, um, and I think I mentioned this once before, he has two separate chapters. Um, he has one chapter titled Sovereignty, God Reigns, in that book. And then he has another one titled Providence. God governs this world. So I just want to help you understand the distinction. Providence, God governs. Sovereignty, God reigns. There's overlap, obviously, between the two, uh, but there is a, there is a distinction uh, between these two. So, so that's what we're talking about this evening. We're talking about uh, God governing creation. And, uh, and so now I just want to, I want to kind of just break down the paragraph bit by bit and uh, because what we are doing we're, we're going through the 1646 london baptist confession of faith our confession of faith uh my hope is that we will all not just say yes this is what we hold to but we we understand it right not only have we read it but we understand it we know what these phrases mean we know what these sentences and these clauses mean okay. um yes just want to make sure that i do understand the difference sovereignty are you saying it's his position as king and providence is his acts of governing yes that's okay. another good way of Just want to make sure putting it, it yes his position and i mean maybe in his authority his position and authority as authority king yes okay. so the paragraph starts by saying god in his infinite power and wisdom and i love that it starts that way because this is really important to understand uh, that God is all-powerful, and He is all-wise, right? Uh, there is nothing that God uh, cannot do other than contradict His own character, right? God cannot sin, and uh, the reason God cannot sin, um, you know, I've had people ask me questions like that before. People are always trying to get, give you these gotcha questions. Well, can God sin? Well, no, because God, it's not because there's something preventing God from doing it, or if he tried, he just couldn't do it. God has no desire to. He has no desire for it, and therefore, he's not going to go against his own desire. Who would, right? No one in this room does anything against their own desire unless they're forced to, 
right? Some of us go to jobs that we don't want to go to, but we have to, right? The, the electric company is making us go to these jobs that we don't want to go to, right? But nobody would ever do anything that is against their desire unless they're made to, and there's nobody big enough to make God do anything that God does not want to do. Yes? Yeah. But um the um so but I like I don't know all the terms but is is that like it's that's his way is the way for God to regret something is not a mistake. Right. So how do you like how do you put that frame that? Is that sure. just his way of relating to man? That's a, no, that's a great question. No, I don't think so. Um it's the it has to do with the, the Hebrew word for regret is the word naham. And it's a word that has a broad range of meanings, um, and and you have to define it by context, and uh, and so it can it can sometimes with the, depending on the context, it can mean to regret in the sense of realizing oh I made a mistake I never should have done that, but it can also mean to have pity it can mean to have compassion it can mean to grieve as well. Um, and so I think in places like that, when it says that God regretted making man, I think a better translation would likely be that God grieved um, having made man. That makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah, and I, I think I think that's wise, you know, um, when you're just, you know, doing your quiet time to just read it. There's a time for just reading God's Word and just listening to the Holy Spirit, and then there's a time for sort of cracking open all the commentaries and, you know. Yeah, great, great question, great question. And so, um, and so yeah, so God... Uh, uh, that's a good segue into this. So God, um, you know, never regrets in the way that we do, right? Because God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. There is nothing that God does not know, 
And there is nowhere that God does not exist. God is omnipresent. Now look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. It's a psalm that many of you are familiar with, I'm sure. Uh, I want to look at I want to look at the first 12 verses. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, uh, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows what you're thinking every moment of every day. Boy, that's a sobering thought, doesn't it? Every thought that enters your mind, God says, I see that. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. There's another sobering thought. Even before you speak, God already knows exactly what you're going to say. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, even in the deepest, darkest cavern in the world where it's completely pitch black, God sees is his point. You cannot hide from God, right? God is never in darkness. God sees everything we do. He hears every word we speak. Uh, and so um, for that reason, you know, God knows everything that is going to happen in the future. And this is why God doesn't have true regrets in the way that we do, right? We have regrets because we don't know the future, right? We make decisions and we do things and they don't go our way and we realize, didn't see that coming, right? That's frustrating, right? Had no idea that was going to happen. We invested a mutual fund in the stock market tanks, ah, right? Didn't see that coming, right? Or we, we quit one job and take another great job and only to realize two months later they're doing a massive layoff, right? Frustrating. Um, God is never frustrated because God knows tomorrow and the day after and the next year and a hundred years from now, He knows all things. So He is all wise and all knowing. It's comforting to know that, right? It's comforting to know that God is not just trying to do His best. God is not just trying to lead you in the right direction or to point, put you on the right path or to do what's best for you. And then when things don't go well for you, God doesn't in heaven say, didn't see that coming. You know, boy, sorry, I'll try harder. Um, you know, so it, it's comforting to know that God is all wise. He is all knowing and he is all powerful. There's nothing outside of God's sovereign reign, right? We talked about that a few weeks later. And God is everywhere, right? There is no place where God is not. And so I love that they start with that, right? God in his infinite power and wisdom. And the word infinite, of course, means without limitations, right? There is no limit to God's power. There is no limit 
to God's wisdom. And then he says, they say, doth dispose all things to the end for which they were created. Uh, now, dispose uh, is an older word that we don't use very often, and it simply means to regulate. If you're wondering, what does that mean? Doth dispose, right? When we use that word, we think of throwing something away, right? <laughs> Get rid of it. We're going to dispose of it, right? But that was a, just an older way of saying to regulate. So God doth regulate or governs or controls all things to the end for which they were created, right? All things are created with a purpose. And what the authors of the 1646 are saying is that God regulates all things toward the end for which they were created, right? Um, so first, what this means is that God did not create a closed mechanistic universe. We sometimes think that as Christians. I've heard Christians say this. I've heard it taught before. This is where uh, William Perry's theory of the divine watchmaker, William Perry was a theologian in the early 1800s, is often taken too far. What he wrote uh, and what he articulated was good. Uh, Perry uh, essentially was correct in saying that the intricacies, in other words, William Perry looked around at the world in which we live in, the human body and what we knew up until that point. And what he saw was this entire world that we live in all works together in a very intricate manner, right? Much like a watch, right? If you opened up a watch, all of the intricate parts that work together to make this, the hands move, especially back then when they were, you had to wind them, right? That was, a, you wound it up, wound it up, and then it just moved on its own with all of these intricate parts. William Perry argued that what we see from creation all points to a divine creator, right? An intelligent designer is what he argued. And he's absolutely right. And so that, that you know, he, he presented that as the divine watchmaker theory. And that is that all of creation points us to the reality that there is an intelligent designer. Um, however, some have taken that idea and they have taken it to mean that God created all things and he wound it up like a divine watchmaker and then he sort of steps back and it just runs on its own, right? Or sort of like those, uh, uh, you know, those, little toy, um, those little toys where you, you wind them up and you set them down and they go and they sort of dance across the right... And so some have taken William Perry's idea and they just took it too far. That's not what he was arguing at all. He was not arguing that God created a closed mechanistic universe, but simply that everything that we see points toward an intelligent designer, right? But nowadays, some want to think that God just creates, winds it up, and now he just sort of sits back and everything runs on its own. Every now and then, from time to time, God will intervene and do things, sort of like, you know, with the virgin birth, obviously. You know, every now and then, God will intervene and he'll do things. Um, uh, the parting of the Red Sea and all of the plagues on Egypt where God intervenes. But for the most part, God just lets the world, he lets the universe run on its own. The scriptures tell us the exact opposite, right? The exact opposite. 
the 1646 states that God doth dispose, he doth regulate all things. And I think they're right. He regulates all things to the end for which they were created. Um, in other words, Scripture tells us that God actively, right? God actively maintains the existence of all creatures. The fact that we exist, that we breathe, he actively does that. God actively involves himself in all events. Every event, big and small, that happens in this world, that happens in this universe, right? When a star way out in outer space explodes, God's actively involved in that, right? When there's a solar flare, God is actively involved in that. Yes, when you lose your keys <laughs> and are late to work, God is actively involved in all events and God actively directs all things to their appointed end. He actively directs all things to their appointed end. God actively governs and controls, for example, the universe at large. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Powerful verse. We'll start in verse 34. <clears throat> says, For his dominion, talking about God as an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right? So God governs and controls everything in heaven, everything on earth, and everything in between. And he does what he wills. And no one can stay his hand. Bible tells us in many places that God governs and controls inanimate creation. Inanimate creation. Job 38. Job 38, verse 11. Uh, we'll start actually verses 8, 38, 8 to 11. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So here, this is, if you remember the story of Job, God is rebuking Job at this point. Where were you, right? Who's the one that does these things? But notice he says, who is it that tells the ocean, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. In other words, God actively sets the boundaries of the ocean. And said, this is as far as you will go, and that's it. You're proud waves. Meaning, you know, waves are powerful. 
I mean, if you've ever seen live footage of like those 50-foot tsunamis that come on, I mean, waves are powerful. And yet, God is telling Job, I control the waves. I control the ocean. As powerful and frightening as it may be, I tell the ocean the limits of its boundaries. You know, this has, um, this has real implications for the whole discussion on climate change, right? I mean, there is this fear about rising sea levels, right? The sea is only going to rise as far as God tells it to, right? God sets the limits of the ocean and tells it how far it will go, how far it will rise, or how far it will sink. Um, God is in sovereign control of the oceans. Um, God governs and controls all human affairs. Look at Psalm 147. Psalm 147, 8 and 9. Or I'm sorry, we're still talking about inanimate creation here. Psalm 147, 8 and 9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. It is God who makes the grass grow. See, that's not the language of a closed mechanistic universe. Right? God is actively involved in making the grass grow. He didn't just create a world in which things just happen on their own, and he sits back and just sort of watches it go all by itself. God is actively involved in making grass grow. He is actively involved in feeding the beasts. He is actively involved in feeding the ravens. God is actively controlling and governing all of creation, right? Because that's what it means to govern, to be actively involved in. And I know we get into this whole political thing about, I wish the government would be less active, right? Um, But at the end of the day, if a government were to truly pull back 100%, then is there a government? God said God has ordained government. That's right. Right. Yeah. God has ordained government. But if the government were to 100% pull back, then there is no government, right? There would be chaos, right? We don't want the government to completely say, we're just completely pulling out and we're not going to do anything, which would mean no law enforcement either because they're a part of the government. They're an arm of the government, right? So to govern means to be actively involved in what is happening in the affairs of people's lives. And that is what God does. He governs his creation. He is also governs and controls human affairs. Providence or providence, Proverbs 16, 9. Look at Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a great one that we never like to see, especially when life isn't going our way. Right? God is saying, look, plan all you want, and you should plan. Planning is good. Right? Um, if you, again, the, the Proverbs have much to say about people who don't plan, about the sluggard, 
that doesn't plan. Paul made plans when he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote that as a missionary letter saying, I'm planning to go to Spain and I want to stop in Rome on the way. Of course, he doesn't get there, at least not that time. Uh, he ends up getting to Rome via being imprisoned in Jerusalem and then taken to Rome as a, as a prisoner. And so God is saying, look, plan your life and plans are good, but understand God determines your steps. God will determine where you end up in life and how you live and what you do because God is in, God governs. Um, he is in control. He governs and controls the universe at large. He governs and controls inanimate creation. He governs and controls human affairs. And he governs and controls the affairs of nations. Job 12, 23. Job 12:23 as uh, Sandra reminded us we're in an election season this is a good verse to remember he makes nations great and he destroys them he enlarges nations and he leads them away right in the end uh, yes we need to be wise in terms of researching who we vote for we do live in a democracy we need to vote but behind all of it. The theological reality is this. The elections are rigged. <laughs> By God. <laughs> the, the, the elections are rigged. By God. Right? <laughs> Job, it's a 12.23. Job 12.23. Job 12.23. But the bottom line is, here's what Job is telling us, or here's what God is telling us through Job, that you do your research, you go to the voting booth, you vote, but God's going to put into the White House the person he wants there. God's going to put in Congress the person he wants there. God is going to give us the elected representatives that he wants. And in the end, the election's rigged, right? Um... But there's comfort in that, right? We started by saying, what? God in his infinite power and wisdom. In his infinite power and wisdom doth regulate all things to the end for which they were created, right? So behind all of these election results is an all-knowing, all-powerful, infinitely wise God, right? That's comforting, right? It's comforting to know that, that our government in the United States, thankfully, is not truly in the hands of the people, right? It's in the hands of God. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, Daniel chapter 4. Yeah. Yes, yes. God controls even the most powerful rulers, and Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful ruler, right? And then, so then the article goes on to say, uh, the next uh, phrase, that neither good nor evil befalls any by chance or without his providence. Thank goodness, right? 
Nothing happens in this world and nothing happens to anyone by chance. By accident, nothing happens. Uh, and it's comforting, it's comforting to know that. It's comforting to know that when things go south in life, right, it's not just dumb luck, right? Oh, it's just dumb luck. It's just, you know, the dice just didn't roll my way. I got, I got dealt a bad hand or whatever the case may be. No, it means that God is in sovereign control. Um, God is, God, uh, through divine providence, is governing every aspect of our lives. And we can wonder, how is that comforting? Well, it reminds me of a, of a story that I read years ago. And it's not a true story. It's just an illustration that I read years ago of, uh, you know, the difference between someone who understands and fully believes in divine providence, in the providence of God, and someone who doesn't is the difference between someone who's, you know, walking toward a set of stairs and as he's walking toward this set of stairs he 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 trips on something that is laying there and he tumbles down 50 flights of stairs concrete head over heels bam 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 all the way down and he gets down to the bottom blam and he thinks to himself as he's laying there in his aching body man i am so dumb i have got to be more careful i should have been watching where i was going Shouldn't have been looking at my phone. I mean, my goodness, I do this all the time. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I have got to be more careful. The person that understands and believes in the providence of God is walking toward that same set of stairs, and they trip, and they fall all the way down to the bottom. And when they get down to the bottom, they writhe in pain a little bit, and then they get up, and they think to themselves, well, I'm glad that's over with. We're moving on. Because we understand that God is in control of everything that happens in our life. And there's a reason behind everything that happens in our life. Even seemingly random accidents are not random, and they're not accidents. Because God sovereignly governs all of creation. Even the evil that befalls us when we are abused or mistreated or slandered or gossiped about or cheated or stolen from or whatever the case may be. And there's so many examples that I could go to, but here are probably two of the most well-known, right? Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph understood that. That's why Joseph was able to not be bitter or angry at his brothers, right? Because Almost anybody else in that same situation would have thought to themselves, yeah, now it's payback, right? It's payback now for what you did. Dad is gone. You're through. But he said, look, what you meant for evil, and he recognized that. He didn't didn't sugarcoat it. What you did was evil. What you meant for evil, God meant for good so that I may save our family and numerous people. He got that, right? So understanding the doctrine of divine providence helps us. So here's, here's the practical aspect of it, right? This is where the, uh, the, uh, the, the Dutch reformers would say, look, you got to put feet to your theology. Here's the practical aspect to it. Understanding the divine providence of God helps us to be able to forgive. 
it helps us to not be bitter because we're able to say, you know what? This is God's doing, right? That doesn't mean that people don't sin or what they did wasn't evil or wrong. But at the end of the day, this is God's doing. This is what God wanted. And God does what he wills in heaven and upon the earth, right? And no one can stay his hand or say, what have you done? Um, there's great comfort in knowing that. Here's the, other, here's the other one, right? We talk about evil coming upon people, right? The greatest evil that was ever committed in the face of all, in the, all of world history is the crucifixion of Christ. Because here was a man who was truly innocent, truly innocent of anything. I mean, I know in our legal system, we put people away sometimes for a crime that they didn't actually commit, but they're not innocent of all crimes, right? They're guilty for something. Um, Jesus never committed a single sin. Never. What's that? That's right, because he's God. That's right, he's God. But the greatest evil that was ever perpetrated on anyone, of course, was brought about by God to bring about the greatest good, salvation to all of us, right? God is in sovereign control. And that was really an evil, I mean, I want to try to put you there. Think of the people who knew Jesus his whole life. Think of his own mother, Mary, who would have thought to herself, my son was a good, good kid. He was a good, good man. He never, ever even said an unkind word to anyone. How is he hanging on a cross in front of me? Beaten to a pulp? Bloody? Scourged? How, how in the world does this happen? His disciples had to have been in shock because they spent three years with him. They knew as well. I mean, if there is anyone who did not deserve this, it was him. How is he hanging on a cross? Horrendous evil. But all God's doing to bring about a greater good, right? Right? And so, Article 5 says, And that whatever befalls the elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. By his appointment. Whatever evil befalls the elect, whatever evil comes upon you, however you're mistreated by people, by your boss, by your coworkers, by your spouse, by your kids, by your parents, right? Whatever evil comes upon the elect is by his appointment. God did that. And it's for His glory. Somehow, God is glorified in it. And we don't always understand why, right? We don't always get the benefit of knowing why. Joseph did, to some degree. He saw, oh, okay. Now at the end of my life, I see what God was doing. Job didn't. Job never did. Yes, he was restored at the end, but at the end of it, the only answer that God gives them is, I'm God, and who are you to question me? I do what I desire to do, Job. At the end of Job's life, Job just had to admit, okay, you're God, and I'm not, and I'm good with that, right? Now, of course, in heaven, Job 
realized it. He got to see. But the point is, sometimes we don't always get to see in this lifetime why. What was that all about? Right? But that's where we have to trust that it's by God's appointment. It is for His glory and it is for our good. And of course, you know what passage I'm going to go to next, right? Romans what? Romans 8, 28 and 29. I think so oftentimes when we stop with just verse 28, we are cutting ourselves short of just a glorious truth in that text. Romans 8, 28 and 29. I always want to encourage you to include verse 29 as well because... Romans 8, I was just there. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. An alternate translation from the Greek can be that God works all things for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All right, now, what does that mean? What purpose is that? Those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what purpose is that? Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose, right? So everything that God does in your life is ultimately to make you more like Christ. It is to conform you into the character of his son. It's to chip away the old you, to, to shave away, and I always like to use that analogy, right? It's like, it's like shaving something with a file, right? God, God shaves away a little more of our sinful character, and it can be painful, but everything that God does in our life, it's by divine appointment, it's for His glory, and it's for our good. Somehow the knot holes He brings us through makes us a little more like Christ. Each time we become a little more like Christ, we learn to trust, we learn to pray more, we become a little more humble, our pride is knocked down just a few more notches, right? And that's a good thing, right? That's a, that's a good thing. For those who love God, um, we should rejoice in the transforming work that God does in our lives. And it can be hard to rejoice in the moment of it. But at the end of the day, we ought to rejoice that God is doing something good in me by bringing this um, into my life. And we take comfort in knowing that God is governing our lives, right? Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by chance. It's not just dumb luck. It's not because, oh, boy, if I was smarter, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, no. It still would have happened because if this is what God has foreordained, it would not matter how smart you are. Uh, God has foreordained for you to go through whatever it is to make you more like Christ. So Romans 8, 28 and 29, boy, those two really ought to go together. And that's it.